Hello, Modern War Institute podcast listeners. I'm Captain Jake Moraldi. This week on the podcast, we have a very special guest, Lieutenant General Robert L. Caslin Jr., the 59th Superintendent of the United States Military Academy. General Caslin recently returned from a trip to Iraq, where he visited operational units and former cadets. And today we'll talk to him about what he saw on his trip, what the situation on the ground in Iraq looks like, what use my cadets are doing in support of the mission in Iraq, and how West Point prepares those cadets for the complex challenges of future war. So please join me for an exclusive interview with General Caslin, an exclusive window into the current war against ISIS in Iraq. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the respective participants and do not constitute the position of the United States government. To learn more about how West Point develops the leaders of the future, please visit usma.edu. For more content on the future of war, please visit the Modern War Institute website at mwi.usma.edu. And make sure you follow the Modern War Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. This is the Modern War Institute podcast. Good morning, sir. I want to jump right in uh, talking about your recent trip to Iraq and ask what the, the purpose of that trip was. Well, the purpose was really twofold. We actually had the opportunity to take the athletic director and two of our coaches with us. And I've done this a number of years now. This is the third time. And when you bring the coach into the operational environment, it gives the coach an understanding of what our graduates do for a living when they actually graduate. They actually see some of their former cadets that they coach. They see them in an operational environment, what they're accomplishing. They have a tremendous sense of pride that they contributed to their development and, and uh, the effectiveness of what they're doing on the ground today. Um, and it gives them some credibility so that when they come back and talk to their players, the cadets of today, and they talk to the recruits, the cadets of, of the future, they have some legitimacy in what they're actually going to be doing when they graduate. And also when recruiting, when you talk to mom and dad, they can have some legitimacy about what actually their son or daughter is going to be doing um, after they graduate from the United States Military Academy. The second purpose it gives me an opportunity as a superintendent to dialogue and engage with our graduates, our recent graduates, so that we have an understanding of the pro, the West Point programs and the developmental programs that we have here at West Point and get their feedback on which ones they thought were most effective in preparing them for the work that they're doing right now. Great. So I understand you spent a lot of time with recent graduates. What was that experience like well, recent graduates are always excited about seeing their superintendent, and they like to show off what they're what they're doing, what they've learned. Um, they're not bashful about telling us uh, what really helped them at while they were at West Point, based on what they're doing today. And so it was some very excellent feedback. Things that uh, I got some very positive feedback on is the Cadet Leader Development Program (CLDT). As much as uh, cadets have some anxiety about going into that and spending a couple of weeks in the field on patrols and learning field craft and, uh, and dealing with the environment and the weather, whether it's cold or rainy or hot. Um, it was that character and, and grit and perseverance that they experienced in CLDT that many of them had said that was the best experience and developmental experience that they had between West Point and their Bolick to prepare them for what they're doing right now. Um, the, the cadets are very grateful of their academic program because it prepares them intellectually for their ability to operate and understand the complexity of the environment um, and to have the 
the uh, intellectual agility and intellectual adaptability and the critical thinking to be able to understand that environment and to be able to thrive in it, not necessarily survive, but to thrive in it. Uh, so they're, appreciate, they're very appreciative of their academic program uh, that they went through. And then, of course, the military program between that and Bullock and the pre-deployment training played a significant role as well. The recent graduates, what role are recent graduates fulfilling in Iraq right now? What sort of missions are they doing? Mm-hmm. What is their task in uh, Iraq right now? Yeah, the, the recent graduates, which are some of the lieutenants, are doing a number of things. Um, they're doing installation security for some of the installation where some of the U.S. and coalition soldiers are operating and training. Uh, so they, so there's a mission for, for them to do that. Um, I got to meet a, a recent graduate who was an engineer, and she had the responsibility, as she was explaining to me, to coach the Iraqi river, river crossing that was recently accomplished near Key West, uh, to do the river crossing across the Tigris River, to, uh, to take that airfield south of Mosul. And as a recent second lieutenant engineer, she was the one who was responsible with Coastal Records on how to do that, which is pretty fascinating in itself. Uh, went up to uh, Taji and hung around the aviators quite a bit. And uh, our aviators are, are, uh, are flying in support of uh, um, not only some of the operations, but also doing a lot of transport, uh, uh, cargo uh, movement, uh, PACS movement uh, as well. And they're doing some great work. And at the same time, they're still coaching the Iraqi aviators uh, uh, in, as a training capacity as well. Um, and our senior leaders are doing some great work, too. Whether you had General Rich Clark, who was the 2nd Airborne Commander, or um, uh, Lieutenant General McFarlane, who is the current commander on the ground there, the senior commander, 3rd Corps. They're doing some incredible work, and we'll probably talk a little bit about that a little bit later on as well. Right. Well, and that, that kind of actually leads me into the next question that I had, which is given the, the current situation in Iraq specifically, but, but kind of more generally around the world, in Afghanistan, every, everywhere that we're engaged, how does what's going on in the world influence the way that officers in general, but specifically cadets and younger officers, how they understand their role and what their job is in the Army? Yeah, that's a great question. So when I was growing up in the Cold War era, we learned our military craft. We learned how to mass combat power at a decisive point on the battlefield, normally at the operational depth, so that we can seize key terrain or destroy enemy formations. There was not a lot of interpersonal training. We left that to the civ mill folks or to the defense attaches. Uh, we were all about going strong, heavy, fast, and to break things. I think fighting a counterinsurgency fight over the last 15 years uh, in both Iraq and Afghanistan has changed our Army significantly, that we had to not only maintain the skills that were necessary to mass combat power and to fight at the operational depth of the battlefield, combine arms maneuver, according to our doctrine. But we also had to learn learn to operate with security missions across wide areas. And ingrained in that is a tremendously complex battlefield, a complex battlefield that um, has so many different dynamics to it and so many different indigenous elements of it. So you not only had the population, but then you had the various indigenous security forces, each with a political bent 
each with a, a degree of professional competence. Then you had indigenous governance, and the governance was at the local, the provincial, and at the central area. And then you had various adversaries that were on the battlefield. It was not a single adversary. Sometimes it was adversaries from three or four separate organizations or groups, each with a different motive and, and objective. And then you had U.S. forces and U.S. personnel and, and other United States government agencies that were on the battlefield. And then you had coalition forces that were on the battlefield. So for a lieutenant to be able to operate and understand all of that and the complexity of that battlefield was significant. He or she had to understand the natural hierarchy of order, how that order had been disruptive, what the pressure points were, how to apply pressure, and then at the same time understand the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth orders of, of, of how that consequence played out. And then to be able to recognize where opportunity existed or how to create opportunity and have the agility to be able to take advantage of it and to be adaptable across the entire environment. The greatest contribution of ground forces over the last 15 years was not our ability to go in there and break things in with our security apparatus. The greatest advantage and contribution of ground forces was our ability to intellectually understand the complexity of the battlefield and then to have the interpersonal skills and the intellectual knowledge to create opportunity and to recognize opportunity and take advantage of it and have that agility to be able to do that. And that's what we learned. And our strength ended up being the relationships that we had established, and our strength was in relationships. And we started to learn that over a long period of time. Today, the forces in Iraq, the U.S. forces and coalition forces in Iraq are all about building relationships. It's amazing to me how we are fighting this war, uh, mostly from a train, train and assist capacity, uh, not even on the battlefield, train and assist back into the, where the forward operating bases are. And then they, and then the Iraqis will go forward and how we'll support them tactically when they're forward and how we have figured out the tactics, techniques, procedures to be able to do something like that. So, to me, it's amazing what our soldiers and our leaders are accomplishing on the battlefield today and playing this significant, I mean, with this significant mission that's got the world's attention to it and to be able to accomplish the mission without putting our soldiers in the last, you know, 300 meters of the ground combat operations. So you highlighted the, the last 15 years of, of coin operations in Iraq and Afghanistan as, as being a pretty significant change from, from what you grew up doing in the Army. Does the current operating environment look more like the last 15 years or, or more like what you did as a, as a young officer? Well, the threats that are out there will beg the fact that we have to develop and train our forces to be ready to fight across the entire spectrum. But the most immediate concerns are whether you have a Russian cross-border operation in Eastern Europe, or whether you have a North Korean invasion south into South Korea. Those, both of those are somewhat close to the, the Cold War scenarios where you have to combine arms and maneuver and mass combat power at the decisive point on the battlefield. Uh, but at the same time, we have a terrorist threat, and we have to be able to counter that terrorist threat. We have to protect the homeland which is becoming more and more important. And we have to work with other government agencies in that task. And 
as we fight these wars forward, there is not a tendency to put a division in the middle of the Middle East again. So we're going to fight these wars as proxy and to lead proxy forces, uh, whether they're indigenous forces or from someplace else. And to be able to, to have the interpersonal skills to be able to influence those proxy forces is, is an amazing and a, and a newly developed skill that our, our leaders are learning how to do. So I think it's important that you highlighted the, the full spectrum that, that we're continuing to try and train our officers to be proficient at. What I'm curious about is because of the unique position that West Point has, sort of the center for, for military thought, especially at the junior officer level, and the center for education and training for officers, how do we take the observations that you found in Iraq and the need to be proficient across that full spectrum and imbue the lessons and developmental modes here that we need to be successful. The battlefield, because of the spectrum of potential conflict, is across is a wider spectrum than what we saw as we were doing counterinsurgency fire over the last 15 years requires us to be more knowledgeable militarily of the different tactics, techniques, and procedures. So we have to be competent militarily. Uh, we also have to study the wars and to see how we're going to fight some of these things. If you look at Iraq in specific right now, in a train, advise, and assist capacity, so how does a officer that's going to graduate from West Point train, advise, and assist an, an Iraqi force or, another co or work with coalition elements to be able to work together to train if that officer is not going to fight in Iraq or in Afghanistan and they have a mission in a contingency mission in Eastern Europe, like the 4th Infantry Division, for example, or a contingency mission, excuse me, a mission in Korea, then they have to understand how to, like I've said before, mass combat power and defeat enemy formations, seize key terrain. And that's what, and that is combined arms maneuver. And to train a unit to be able to conduct combined arms maneuver, whether it's a platoon, a company, a battalion, or a brigade, or even a, a division, um, that's a that's a very uh, significant training event and a skill that's that's um, significant at the leader level, at the staff level, and um, even at the small unit level. Uh, which goes to the point that training and training and readiness becomes a more and more important factor. When we were in the Cold War, uh, training became so paramount on how we were training and, and what, what our H-step training factor was and how we were um, preparing at the small unit level and, and escalating up to uh, larger unit training events, but first training at individual skills, the small unit collective skills, and the management of that training was a significant, was a significant task. Uh, when we fought the counterinsurgency fights and you had the ARFRGEN training model, you pretty much training management from our junior officers and at company level and below turned out to be uh, not, a, not a requirement because in ARFRGEN all you had to do is show up and, you, and somebody was going to train you and then you were going to rotate into theater, conduct the mission, then come back and get ready for the next one. So, so in order to fight these combined arms maneuver contingency missions, the ones in Eastern Europe and in North Korea, training becomes a more and more important factor. And our graduates have to learn training and training management. 
and they've got to learn how to train. They've got to learn how to conduct training and how to manage the training over, you know, uh, over level. Not only individual skills, but collective skills. Not only collective skills uh, at their level, if they're platoon leaders or company commanders, but collective skills at the at small level, like squad, uh, platoon, if you're a company commander, things like that. And they got to understand and know how to do all that and how to resource it and how to prepare people for training, things of that sort. How are we building in those requirements here at West Point into our developmental methods, the requirement to have cadets who are capable of, of going out into the force and, for example, managing training in the way that you said? Yeah, well, the way I look at West Point is that our, our principal mission is to, is to graduate officers, not necessarily develop platoon leaders. So I want to develop any, an officer to graduate from the United States Military Academy who's a member and a leader within the profession of arms. Um, so my military skills requirement as a superintendent that is given to me by the United States Army and Training and Doctrine Command are the pre-commissioning skills. So some of the skills that you're referring to so that you can be competent enough to be able to operate as a platoon leader and operate as a company commander will be learned in Bolick and TRADOC will pick up those responsibilities. Um, my, my intent is to develop someone who is going to be a professional officer that has, the, has not only the military skills that pre-commissioning are required, but also has the intellect, has the physical competence, and has the character to be able to lead soldiers in today's modern battlefield. Um, so I don't want to kind of slip to say all of a sudden now I have a responsibility to, to develop platoon leaders. I have a responsibility to develop officers. And to make that officer a platoon leader, then, then when they graduate, TRADOC within Bolick and the unit training picks him up or her up to the point where they're going to be a very competent platoon leader. And they'll be trained those specific military skills and leadership skills at Bolick and at the unit training uh, that they're responsible for once they get to the unit. So, um, so, so what's key? So as we design our training programs here at West Point in cadet field training, cadet basic training, cadet field training, cadet leader development training, it's really focused as a leader development model and at the same time to teach the, the required skills that TRADOC gives me for pre-commissioning, you know, like, like uh, land navigation, to be able to qualify for a weapon, uh, to be able to lead a patrol, things of that sort. And, and uh, so that's why our cadets will go out there and they'll, and they'll do all that stuff. Um, that's what our CFT program, our summer programs are really designed to do. Um, the study of war in, for example, what the Modern War Institute's doing and, um, and things like that, I think are great because that allows the, the cadet to develop the intellectual skills necessary to be able to thrive within that complex environment, as I mentioned before. And I think those are important. The character aspect of development becomes tremendously important. And the reason the character aspect of development is so important is that because we are in the public domain. And when we take an oath of office, we swear allegiance to the Constitution, which puts us subordinate to our civil authorities who are elected by the American people and in the profession of arms, our client or the American people. And when America entrusts us with her sons and daughters, they don't want a leader or an officer who is going to lead their sons and daughters, who is going to have a character in public that's different from a character in their private life. They want someone who's going to have a character that's going to be um, in accordance with the values of our nation, the values of our army, and the values of West Point. And it's going to be in accordance with those values 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 
and they want to trust us that they that we will lead their sons and daughters in the worst of circumstances you can imagine if you're a mom or dad and you're going to put give your son or daughter to some lieutenant out there to lead in the worst of circumstances where people's lives are on the line and i want as a mom or dad to make sure that i trust you lieutenant that you have the character to be able to lead my son or daughter properly so character development uh, that we do here to prepare them to be an officer in the United States Army, to have the trust of the American people as an officer in the United States Army becomes paramount and most probably the most important thing that we do here. So that's kind of the perspective of where we are with, with our leader development programs here at West Point. We're, we're design, we are focused to preparing officers, officers who can lead America's sons and daughters. And then TRADOC picks it up to train them to be the platoon leaders so that they can learn the skills that are necessary, military skills that are necessary to operate within white area security and combined arms maneuver. I want to go back and, and talk again about the, the complexity piece that you saw on your trip in Iraq. You talked the, the intellectual piece of integrating things that are going on in the real world into sort of a cadet's mindset as part of being here at West Point. How do we go about dynamically doing that, given that the world changes so quickly and the situation that these cadets are going to be going into changes so quickly. What do you feel like is the best method to integrate all the things that are going on in the world into their development so that they're ready when they leave? That's a great question. I think it boils down to that we need to teach our cadets not what to think but how to think, that we need to give them a broad curriculum so that they have the fundamental intellectual skills across that curriculum both in the humanities and liberal arts and in the sciences. And that gives them the fundamental intellectual skills that are necessary. But then once they pick their major and they dive in depth in their major and they work some of these projects and other complex problems, both individually and collectively within groups, that's where they develop the intellect ability to be able to think creatively, to think in, in depth and this, they do this intellectual agility, this intellectual agility where they recognize or create opportunity and have the adaptability to take advantage of it over time. And, and that's, the, that, that's the kind of the thinking and intellectual capacity I think that's necessary. I'll give you an example. When I was a uh, division commander in northern Iraq, I had a battalion commander who had responsibility for Balad near Samar. Samar was the Sunni city that had the Shia mosque that Zarqawi had blown up in the early 2006 in order to incite the Sunni Shia, Sunni Shia civil war within Iraq. So a very hostile area, and the fighting was very intense when he got there. So how does he deal with a very dangerous and hostile security environment? This is intellectual thinking. He finds two wealthy Iraqis and brings them together and convinces them, earns their trust, convinces them to pull their money together and create an Iraqi bank. So they listened to him, and they did, and they started lending their money out. And they lent their money out to this dilapidated tomato paste factory, and the guy took the loan, and he got his factory up and running again. Well, now that he got the tomato paste factory up and running again, all the farmers in the area who hadn't been farming for about four years all of a sudden now had a place to, a market to bring their tomatoes. So they all started growing tomatoes again. Well, in order to grow tomatoes in Iraq, since it's so arid, irrigation is critically important, which, which means you got to get the water out of the Tigris River into the canals and out of the canals into the field. All the canals were dilapidated. They were full of silt. They were busted. They all needed to be repaired. That's the responsibility of the local government. The farmers put the pressure on the local government, and the local government delivered. They started fixing the canals. And then you needed 
a, a way to pump the water out of the canal, out of the river, and to pump the water out of the canal into the fields, which means you need generators and you need electricity. So again, the farmers put pressure on the local government to provide the electricity, and they produced. And guess what? The government became legitimate in their eyes because they were able to provide the essential services that they needed. And because it became legitimate, then all of a sudden they started growing tomatoes like crazy, and they started bringing them to the tomato paste factory, and then you start you had a market and an entrepreneurship that was that was beginning to grow. Well, the tomato paste factory was on Highway 8, which is the main road between Baghdad and Mosul, and all the Toyota pickup trucks with tomatoes in the background were parking on Highway 8, and they were plugging up the road, and everybody was getting upset because it was all plugged up. So some entrepreneur Iraqi said, okay, I'll fix this problem. I'm going to create a parking lot. So he created a parking lot, and they started parking their cars in the parking lot. And then someone said, well, they were all hungry, so someone said, I'm going to start a restaurant. And he had a restaurant, and then they got there early, they needed a place to sleep, and someone built a hotel there. So you had all of these businesses that were starting to spin off, like a, like a can business, a label business, and things like that, because... This one battalion commander said the best way to bring security here is to build the economy and to get the essential services working so that the people can trust the government again. So how intellectually do you figure something like that out? You know, if, if the Cold War mentality chasm was there, I would have just, you know, been increased my patrols and, and asked for some more firepower and some more H-64 or F-16s flying overhead or something like that. I would be looking for the military solution, not the intellectual solution. And that's what I call having the intellect to create opportunity or to recognize opportunity and having the agility to, to, to be able to maneuver so that you can take advantage of it and to have the interpersonal skills so that he can develop these relationships where these people trusted him, just a, you know, a battalion commander, 40 years old. You know, why would they trust a foreigner like that? And they did. And that, that's, you know, what you got. So there's lots of stories like that, and uh, that that's one of the things, I think, why here at West Point that the intellectual program is so tremendously important so that they learn not what to think but how to think and that they can work their way through that, and that's having the, the tenacity to get in, in, an, in an environment like that and to be able to thrive in that environment. So, again, West Point is a, is a unique sort of place in that most of the instructors, the vast majority, have – a lot of military experience. How do you view staff and faculty leveraging their experience to help educate cadets? Yeah, the well, one of the great advantages we have here at West Point is that our instructors have lived in the environment that the student's going to go into. They all, they all come from a practitioner standpoint, and then they have all gone to graduate school so that they now have learned their discipline and they have a degree of depth that they really fully understand. Then they're also here instructors to, to further their intellectual development through re research and things like that. That rotating faculty that comes in here, the 60% of our faculty, 65% of our faculty, that's rotating faculty, is a great model of bringing the most recent expertise of what's happening in the battlefield to the cadet. And on top of that, I mean, they were cadets themselves eight, nine years ago. So they remember very specifically, you know, what life is like as a cadet. And as a result, they have a relationship with the cadets so that there's a lot of trust in between because they, you know, they speak the same language, they understand some of the challenges and things like that. And to have that rapport and to have the trust within that rapport means a lot. Or said another way, they have the ability to be of great influence to, uh, to those young cadets. 
Uh, so they bring they become they bring their expertise, they bring their experience, they have the trust relationship, and they're the ones that are going to be role models for these young men and women because of the of that special relationship that they have. You know, I remember when I was I came back to West Point um, as a TAC officer, and about seven years after I had graduated, and it was a great experience, and I really admired and had had a lot of. Uh, had some great relationship with some of those cadets, but what really I appreciated over the years was the cadets that I was a attack officer for and to watch them excel in the Army and to do exceptionally well, even to the point where a number of them are corporate executives or CEOs of businesses. There's a couple of them that are still in the Army as general officers, and I look forward to the day when one of my former cadets outranks me so that I have to call him sir, you know, and I'm sure that will happen here pretty soon. So I'm looking forward to that day. But it gives you great satisfaction to see that you had an ability to, to be of influence to them in their formative years. And every instructor that comes back here, every faculty member, every even staff and TAC officers have the ability to be of influence to cadets and then to watch them mature and grow once they graduate from here and go up into the United States Army. So the last question I have for you is for cadets and Army leaders and generals, given what you saw in Iraq recently and, again, the, the context more generally around the world, what can leaders and cadets do themselves to prepare for the, uh, the environment that they're going to face yeah, I, well, first of all, they have to understand and know the environment. And the one thing that I learned as, um, you know, division commander in Iraq, and then when I went back in OSCI, and then I saw it again, is that this this is a war that is not fought with the military alone, with the security apparatus alone. It's a, And it's not fought with the U.S. forces alone. It's fought with a coalition which means you have to work together and understand everybody's culture so that you can develop those relationships that really create those bonds that are necessary, both with the coalition and with the indigenous forces and security forces and security governments. Back here at West Point, to understand how, how that complex battlefield is, not only tactically, but also how that complex battlefield is across all elements of national power, governance as an example, economic as another example, it helps you to understand the big picture, and then once you get out there, it understands, helps you understand where you are with respect to the big picture and what those big picture influencers are doing on, into your organization and to those whom you're engaging with. And who knows, maybe one day you'll be at the upper levels of the staffs so that you have the ability to influence some of those upper level areas that are not necessarily military, but a governance that, so that you can help to improve governance or you can help to improve rule of law, or you can help to improve essential services. and uh, But intellectually, you understand how it all comes together. And, you know, and that's the training that you receive here at West Point. Great. Well, that's all I have for you, sir. I appreciate you taking the time to, to talk to us. Okay. Thank you very much. All right. If you'd like to find additional research, op-eds, and other original ideas from the Modern War Institute, please visit the War Council blog, at mwi.usma.edu or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find new episodes of the Modern War Institute podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. For the Modern War Institute, I'm Captain Jake Moraldi. I hope you'll join us next time for more in-depth discussions on war, policy, and leadership.